I'm going to take from my text a very familiar passage out of Second Chronicles. We'll get to that in just a few moments. I read a story of the great catcher, Yogi Berra. He was in a, in a game behind home plate, bottom of the ninth, two outs. The batter steps up to the box, tie score. And this young Catholic man makes the sign of the cross on home plate. Yogi Berra is squatting behind home plate. He reaches out and he's Catholic too. He just wipes off the dust with his with his glove, and he says, let's just let God watch this game. That's probably a pretty good theology if you're talking about the outcome of a ball game. But how many of you know that's a bad theology if you're talking about the way we live our life? A lot of people are that way. Let's just let God watch this one and not have his way. But God wants to have his way this morning. Amen? I want to tell you on this 4th of July weekend that the hope for America is a merciful God. The good news is this, that God is merciful and that God responds to the prayers of his people. In fact, the Bible says that God delights in showing us his mercy. You know, we're doing something on Wednesday nights uh, once a month. We're praying through the streets of Wrightsville. Uh, In fact, we did it this last weekend. Several of us came together at seven o'clock on Wednesday night, as we do every Wednesday night. But on this particular night, we all came in our walking shoes and God blessed us with another beautiful evening. And we walked the streets of this community. And our purpose in doing that is this. Throughout these summer months, we're going to walk every street and every alley in the borough of Wrightsville. And we're not just walking for exercise. We're walking by faith. We're taking a prayer walk. And our conviction is right out of God's word in Joshua chapter 1, where the Lord told Joshua that he would uh, fulfill the promise that he gave to Abraham. And he said, I will give you every piece of land on which your shoe shall trod. And so as we're walking by faith, we're praying and we're believing that God's going to give us favor and victory and that we're going to see salvations in this community. Now, some people might look at that and say, now, why, why would you do that? I'll tell you why. Because God is a God who answers prayer. We do it because we have the authority of God's word and we believe that God is going to respond to prayer. Now, if you don't believe that, you're going to struggle with this message this morning because everything I'm going to say to you today is built on this conviction that God is a God who responds to the prayers of his people. Did you know that God doesn't just want to give us rightsville? God said in his word, ask of me and I'll give you the nations as an inheritance. So let's not limit our prayers this morning. Let's not limit God's capacity. He, he's not just wanting to give you a, a saved family or, or even a, you know, a saved extended family or even a community. God wants to give us the nations as an inheritance. And the prerequisite, he said, is that you ask of me. Ask of me and I'll give you the nations. I read an interesting bit of history that Edward McKendry bounds. He was alarmed at the certain tendencies that he saw within his own denomination at the end of the 19th century. He would despair if he saw what he called then the trends of the day and how now it's become the order of the day. But in the 19th century, he wrote these words and I want to share them with you. He said, we are constantly on a stretch, if not 
on a strain to devise new methods, new plans, new organizations to advance the church and secure enlargements and efficiency for the gospel. The trend of this day has a tendency to lose sight of the man or sink the man in the plan of the organization. God's plan is to make much of the man, far more of him than of anything else. Men are God's method. The church is looking for better methods. God is looking for better men. He writes on, What the church needs today is not more machinery or better, not new organizations or more and novel methods, but men whom the Holy Spirit can use. Men of prayer, mighty in prayer. The Holy Spirit, he writes, does not flow through methods, but through men. He does not come on machinery, but He comes on men. He does not anoint plans, but men. Men of prayer. And we could certainly as equally say women, as he used that phrase to speak of mankind. I want to tell you this morning, it's the same at the, at the beginning of this century as it was in the 19th century, that God doesn't pour His Spirit out on methods. God doesn't pour His Spirit out on machinery or on church buildings. He pours His Spirit out on people. God anoints people to do the plans that He's called us to. And I just want to say, and this is not going to be a political sermon today, but in this political year in our nation, while people are looking for a man or a woman to bring the answers, to bring the hope, to turn our nation around, to turn our country around, to bring solutions to America, I just want to declare on 4th of July weekend that Jesus Christ is the hope for the United States of America. He's the hope. Amen. It's not the right wing, it's not the left wing, there are two wings on the same bird that's moving in the wrong direction. I want to tell you, our salvation is not in a donkey, it's not in an elephant, it's in the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. His name is Jesus, and we're going to declare Him today, amen? He's the hope for our nation, and we serve a God who responds to prayer. Now I want you to look at a verse with me in 2 Chronicles chapter 7. Some of you anticipated this chapter and... You're already there and some of you might have already found the right verse. But in the Old Testament in second, in first Chronicles chapter seven, second Chronicles, sorry, chapter seven, verse 14, we get a promise here from God that he gave to Solomon. Solomon had spent all night in prayer and I don't, I won't take time today to read his prayer, but if you read the verses that precede uh, these we're going to pick up in verse 13 and 14 but if you read the verses that precede these you see that solomon knows the pattern of god's people he knows their tendency to turn their hearts from god he knows their tendency to get distracted from the important things to get fixated on the unessential things of life he knows the tendency of god's people to rebel to turn their back on god and so he's calling out to god about this beautiful temple that he's built And he says, God, would you make this a place where your glory dwells? Would you make this temple that I have built for your glory and honor a place where people can call out to you and you respond to them? He gives a bunch of hypothetical situations saying, God, if we turn our backs on you, but we call on you in this place, will you respond graciously to us? God, if we're taken away into captivity, but even from a far off land, God, if we turn our face back towards this house, 
Will you relent? Will you have mercy? Will you restore us again? Over and over he prays this prayer. And then God responds to him in these verses. Look with me. In verse 13. The Lord says, When I shut up the heavens so that there is no rain, or command the locust to devour, or send a plague among my people. Those were the those were the repercussions of the rebellion that Solomon had described to the Lord in prayer. He knew these things would happen as a result of disobedience. And so the Lord responded in saying, When those things happen, Because of disobedience. When those things happen in the land. When plagues come. When drought comes. When devastation comes to your crops. Here's what the Lord says in verse 14. And and here's where we're going to drop anchor today. He said, if my people who are called by my name will humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways. Then I will hear from heaven and I will forgive their sin and I will Heal their land. The Bible says in James chapter 5, here's what we're to do. In James chapter 5 verse 16, it says, Therefore, confess your sins to each other and pray for each other so that you may be healed. And then it tells us this, the prayer of the righteous man, the righteous person is powerful and effective. Can I tell you this morning that prayer is powerful and effective? Now, don't disqualify yourself from that by saying, yeah, but I'm not very righteous. Because the Bible says in Isaiah, in fact, none of us are righteous enough, but God has given us his righteousness. So if you're saved, God sees you as righteous today. Isn't that good news? You don't don't have to cover up like Adam and Eve did in the garden before he clothed them with grace. You're covered today. You don't have to hide. He sees you as righteous. And the Bible says the prayer of a righteous person is powerful and it's effective. I'm going to tell you this morning that God changes reality in response to prayer. You have no idea the power that is yours today if you haven't tapped into the resource of prayer. We can pray, the Bible says, and see circumstances Change. As we look at this verse, we're going to dissect it a little bit. Second Chronicles 7, 14 begins with a condition. It says, if my people who are called by my name, if, if they pray. Now, if they don't pray, that tells me that this isn't going to happen. If they don't pray, there are things that won't happen. But prayer can change reality. That's why Jeremiah 33 tells us to call on the Lord. He said, call on me and I'll show you great and mighty things which you do not know. In other words, if you don't call on me, you won't see my greatness displayed in your life. But if you'll call, if my people will pray. I want to tell you this morning, because a lot of people are confused by this, that God is sovereign. God is in control. He'll have his way. His will will be done in the earth. But a lot of people think that that means it's not important that I pray. Because God is in control, because God is gonna, things are gonna happen the way God wants to. My prayer life ultimately is ineffective in relation to what happens in the nations or in, in the cosmos or in my world. It's really ineffective because after all, God is God and He's gonna do what He wants to do. But I wanna tell you today that God is not limited in His sovereignty by being responsive to our prayers. In fact, it's the opposite. The fact that God responds to our prayers emphasizes the greatness of His sovereignty. It's like this. God can 
cause rain to fall on the earth. But God can also cause clouds to be the cause of rain that falls on the earth. And it's the same way with our prayer life. There are things that are going to happen in your life because you pray. And it doesn't influence or diminish the sovereignty of God. The reality is God in His sovereignty has determined that some things are going to happen because you pray. You are free to do what you want to do. And God is even freer. So the sovereignty of God is not limited by the reality that He responds to the prayers of His people. I don't want to spend a lot of time today telling you that you should pray or how you should pray. But I want to tell you what happens when we pray. Let me just give you a couple verses to to build your faith. We'll throw these on the screen. The Bible says in Psalm 34 and verse 15, The eyes of the Lord are on the righteous. Again, that's you. That's me. The eyes of the Lord are on the righteous. And listen to this. His ears are attentive to their cry. A couple of verses later, he says, the righteous cry out and the Lord hears them. He delivers them from all of their trouble. Somebody say all. He delivers them from all of their trouble. Who? The righteous who cry out to the Lord. I want to tell you this morning that the God of heaven is listening. And I believe that it's time like never before that we as a people of God in this nation begin to do what Isaiah said. Cry aloud and spare not. Lift up your voice like a trumpet. It's time that we begin to call on God and believe for him to bring change to this nation. God still sends waves of revival. And I believe God wants to send another wave of revival to this nation. The Bible tells us what the stipulations are, what the prerequisites are for us seeing revival. We're going to look at this verse a lot today, but I want to emphasize it again in 2 Chronicles seven fourteen. It begins with these words, If my people who are called by my name will humble themselves. You know what that tells me? He's talking to the church. He didn't say, if, if the nation, if the godless people, if the liberals. No, no. He said, if my people who are called by my name will humble themselves. That tells me that when it comes to the spiritual condition of America, there can be no finger pointing. Unless we're pointing at the church. It's up to us, church. Do you see that? It, it's up to us. I mean, the promise, and we'll get to it again at the end of the verse, is that I will hear from heaven and I will heal their land. But it's conditional upon the response, not of the lost world, not of lost people, not the, not the heathen. It's conditional upon the promise of the response of God's people. If my people called by my name will humble themselves... I'm going to tell you this morning, if America is going to make a U-turn, it's going to be because the church of Jesus Christ falls on her knees again and learns how to pray. Amen. Jesus said this. Here's the, here's the authority that you have. Jesus said in Matthew 28. Look at it up here with me. He said, Jesus came to his disciples and he said, all authority. Can we say all authority? All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Why? Why would God give Jesus all authority? Jesus has all authority. Why? Look at, look at the next verse. Therefore, 
It says in verse 19, therefore, you go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to obey everything that I have commanded you. And surely I am with you always, even to the end of the age. Do you understand the reason that God gave Jesus all power and authority is so that you and I could go out and preach the gospel? He said, I have the authority for your sake. That's exactly what Paul said in Ephesians. I love this verse, Ephesians 1.22. I just want to lay a foundation for prayer for you today. Here's what it says. And God placed all things. Come on, say all things. I'm trying to get you all to participate like the youth camp students. We're working on them, right guys? We're working on them. He said all things are under his feet and appointed him. Speaking of Jesus, he appointed him to be the head over everything. Why? For the church. You see that? The reason that God appointed Jesus the head and put everything under his feet was for our sake. The reason that Jesus had all power and authority has been given unto me was for our sake. So that we could operate in the earth with power and authority. We have every heavenly resource that we need. But the change has to begin with us. The Bible says in 1 Peter that judgment begins in the house of God. Judgment begins in the house of God. And so revival has to begin with us. Someone asked years ago, Gypsy Smith, what it takes to start a revival. Here was his answer. He said, go home and lock yourself in a room. Kneel down in the middle of the floor. Draw a chalk line all the way around yourself. And then begin to ask God to start a revival inside the chalk circle. When he answers your prayer, revival is on. It starts here. It starts with me. It starts, it starts with you. It's not God, heal our nation. It's God, do a work in my heart. God, let it begin here. This morning, I want to give you in the time we have left four prerequisites right out of this verse. Four prerequisites for revival. The first one, it says this. If my people who are called by my name will humble themselves. Say humble themselves. The first one is preparation. Preparation. He said if you humble yourselves. The Bible says in James 4 and verse 6 that God opposes the proud. But he gives grace to the humble. So I'm going to tell you right now. Revival is not coming to anyone that God is opposing. You're on the wrong team if you have pride in your heart. The Bible says he opposes you, but he gives grace to the humble. And so the first step for a move of God, for revival, for renewal, for an outpouring or whatever you want to qualify it is, for God to pour his spirit out and heal our land, it begins with preparing our own hearts, with humbling ourselves before God. Listen to this verse in James chapter 4 and verse 10. It says, humble yourselves. Not, not let somebody else humble you. It says humble yourselves before the Lord. And he will lift you up. See the key to God lifting you up. The key to God renewing you, restoring you, refilling you. Reviving you in your spirit. To take what was once dead and lifeless. And, and call it forth to life again. The key to him lifting you up. Is you humbling yourself. 
When you and I get broken before God, the Bible says a broken and a contrite heart, he will not despise. He won't turn you away. He can't resist a humble heart that comes after him. He's for you. So it's not a question of whether or not we're going to be humbled. The question is whether we will humble ourselves. Because the Bible says in Philippians that one day every knee will bow, every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God. In other words, a day is coming where everyone's going to be humbled. Even Satan himself will fall to his knees and declare Jesus Christ is Lord. But grace comes to those who humble themselves, who choose for themselves to bow their knee before the Lord. God can't resist a humble heart. That's why when he was preaching his inaugural message in Matthew 5, he began with these words. He said, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. He said, I'm, I'm going to give you the keys to the kingdom. Here's the access. Or can I say it this way? The kingdom of heaven has a dress code. The Bible says, clothe yourselves with humility. And so when Jesus sees us putting on humility and not pride and not arrogance and not, not uh, self-righteousness. When he sees us clothing ourselves in humility, he invites us in. He says, those who are clothed in humility... The poor in spirit, theirs is the kingdom of heaven. It begins with preparation. Here's the second prerequisite for revival. It's prayer. Simply prayer. Look at it with me again, the same verse, verse 14. It says, if my people who are called by my name will humble themselves and pray. You know what that means? It means pray. It's amazing how much time we can spend talking about prayer discussing prayer, talking about the importance of prayer, the different types of prayer, reading the prayers of other people. And we don't pray. But if God's going to move, He's going to move in response to the prayers of His people. Here's what prayer is. Prayer is simply humility in action. I mean, we have to be humble. We have to come to the place where, where we recognize our total dependence on God. Total dependence. We come to the place where we say, God, without you, this isn't going to work. That's humility. It's acknowledging the fact that we are desperate for God to move. But the second step is that we tell Him. That we call out to Him. That we let Him hear our hearts cry to say, God, we need you. God, would you forgive us? God, would you move? Would you pour out your Spirit? And there's people that get so hung up on how to pray. I don't know what to say or, or what to do. Listen, God is looking For an authentic heart in prayer. When you pray to God, the most important thing is authenticity. Because the Bible says this, the the Bible says God is looking at the heart. Man looks at the outside, but God is looking at the heart. In fact, Jesus even said in in that same Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 6, about verse 7, He said, don't pray like the hypocrites. Because they stand on the corner and they pray out loud and they use these flowery words so that everybody hears them. And here's what Jesus said about that prayer life. If you're praying to impress other people, you've already gotten your reward. And that reward amounts to a pat on the back. It amounts to people going, wow, you have a beautiful prayer language. Jesus said, that's all the answer you're getting. Whatever praise they give you, that's what you get. If your motivation for praying is the applause of men. But if your motivation is the applause of heaven and you just shut yourself away, Jesus said, go into the secret place, close the door and approach your father in prayer. And he who hears you in the secret place will reward you in public. 
When you go to God in prayer, don't be concerned with how beautiful it sounds. Don't be concerned with whether you, you use the these and the thous and, and the, all of the, the scripture that you, you should have remembered but you can't remember and you kind of butchered the verse as you said it. Don't worry about all that because God is looking at your heart and He's moved when we pray. The Bible says some things only happen in response to prayer. Think about it. Some things only happen in response to prayer. Wouldn't it be a shame to stand before God and see all of the potential that was ours had we prayed? James says this, you have not because you ask not. It's that simple. You don't have some things because you haven't asked God. Apparently, we're not the only ones to deal with this problem. The disciples did the same thing. Like I was reading the story this week in, in Mark chapter 9, and we won't take time to, to read the story, but let me just give you the short version. The disciples were trying to minister to people, and, and a man whose son was possessed by a demon came to them. And they said, my, my son's got a demon, and it throws him down into the fire, and, and he's burned, and sometimes it throws him into the water, and he's almost drowned a multitude of times, and I can't get any sleep, and, and our, our life is chaos. Do something. And, and the Bible says that when Jesus showed up, the disciples and all of the crowd and all of the religious leaders were arguing with each other. He said, what are you arguing about? So they told him. And the man said, look, I asked him to cast the demon out of my son, and, and they couldn't do it, and... And if you can do it, please do it. And Jesus said, absolutely I can do it. And he cast the devil out of that young man. The Bible says he, he was laying there on the ground. So motionless that people said, he's dead. Jesus said, he's not dead. And he reached over and he picked the young man up. And he stood. And he was whole. And he was alive. And everybody was amazed. And it was miraculous. And, and all the crowd goes off. And the disciples come to Jesus. And they go, how did you do that? And more importantly, why couldn't we do that? And Jesus turns to him, and here's the answer he gives him. In Mark chapter 9, verse 29, he replied, This kind can only come out by prayer. I read that and I wonder, what were they doing before Jesus got there? I mean, can you imagine? They're trying to cast the devil and apparently they didn't even pray. You know, that's the way the church is a lot of times. The problem is they just knew too much. I mean, they had seen Jesus do miracles. They're like, maybe we should try rubbing mud on this kid. You know, I saw Jesus do that one time. Well, maybe, maybe, you know, we should just touch him. I saw Jesus touch. Maybe we should let him touch us because I saw a lady touch Jesus and she got healed. And they had all these strategies and, and mechanics and machinery for how to see God move. And they forgot that some things only happen when we pray. I just wonder this morning. What is not happening in your life simply because you haven't prayed? I don't mean a little now I lay me down to sleep kind of prayer. I mean to really go before God, to prepare your heart, to humble yourself before God, to own up to your own desperation and your need for Him. And after you've prepared, to pray. I mean to really pray before God and to seek His face. How much have we missed because some things only happen when we pray. Let me give you the third one. Here's the third prerequisite for revival. After we've prepared, after we've prayed, he tells us we need passion. 
Look at verse 14 again in 2 Chronicles 7. If my people who are called by my name will humble themselves and pray and seek my face. Now, if you look at it on the surface level, it almost sounds redundant to say pray and seek my face. Because a lot of times we think those things are synonymous. To pray and seek the face of God, to seek the face of God is to pray. But this word, to seek the face of God, speaks of desire. I mentioned earlier the scripture out of Samuel that says, while man looks at the outside, God is looking at the heart. The reality is, God is not looking for people who just say words of prayer. He's not moved by your lips. He's moved by your heart. And so he says, you've got to be people of passion. It's not enough to just say the right things. It's not a wor- enough to just repeat words of prayer if your heart is not in it. And he says, don't just pray, seek my face. You know, a lot of people, they don't see God move because they do pray, but they don't ever seek the face of God. They only seek his hand. God, give me this. God, give me that. Lord, bless me with this. All they want is God to stretch out his hand and open it up and give them something. And God said, that's not, that's not the key to revival. If you just want me to do something for you, you need to go back to step one. You're prideful. You're selfish. You need to prepare your heart. You need to humble yourself first and pray, seeking my face. Come to the place where if all you get is me, it's more than enough. Amen? If all he ever does for you is bless you with his presence, you got more than you ever needed. But a lot of times we never pray that way. We never say, God, you're all I want. We're saying, God, I want you. I need you to bless me. God, I want you. I'm desperate for you to get me a raise. God, help me to deal with these kids. And and God's saying, seek my face. Seek my face. Even if you lose it all. Seek my face. Desire. Desire. That's what has to well up on the inside of us. Desire. Passion. I love people that are full of passion. I can watch just about any sport if the people playing it are full of passion. I love passionate people. It's contagious. It's infectious. God says, I'm looking for a heart that is seeking my face, a desire for more of me. The Bible says in Joel chapter 2, Joel, if you take the time to read the book of Joel, it's the long version of Second Chronicles chapter 7 verse 14. Like you could take the whole book of Joel and just boil it down to one verse and it would be Second Chronicles seven fourteen. But in Joel, the Bible says in chapter 2 and verse 12, even now, declares the Lord, return to me with all your heart. Can we say all your heart? All your heart. With fasting and weeping and morning. Here's desire. This is passion. He says, return to me with all of your heart. And then look at the next verse. He starts talking about what people do outwardly versus what really moves the heart of God. He says in verse 13, rend your heart and not your garments. Return to the Lord your God, for he is gracious and compassionate, slow to anger and abounding in love, compassionate. He relents from sending calamity. That sounds like a quote almost right out of the fourth chapter of the book of Jonah that we just studied for the last four weeks. The people in Nineveh, when they repented, they rent their garments, they tore them, they put ash on them because it was common in that culture to express outwardly the motivation of your heart. But the problem with God's people was they were doing all the outward things. They were tearing their clothes. They were putting ashes on them. And God was saying, it's not going to move my heart if it doesn't move yours. 
Rend your heart, not your garments. God was saying, if you want revival, get real. I'm not moved by the lyrics that you recite. I'm not moved by attendance to a service. I'm not moved by a Christian bumper sticker or a witness wear t-shirt. Rend your heart. Rend your heart and not your garments. And he promises, if you'll return to me with all your heart, I'll be gracious, I'll be compassionate. Can I tell you this morning that God is listening for the cry of intercession that comes from moving hearts, not only from moving lips. The fourth prerequisite is this. It's purity. After we prepare, after we pray, after we have passion, it's purity. He said, if my people who are called by my name will humble themselves and pray and seek my face. And then he gives another prerequisite and turn from their wicked ways. Can I just tell you this morning, sin has no place in the presence of God. It's that simple. Sin cannot dwell in the presence of God. He is a holy God. That means sinless, perfect. The way to stay holy and to be holy is to not have sin in your midst. And so God is completely holy. That's why the Bible tells us in Isaiah 59, it says, Surely the arm of the Lord is not too short to save, nor is his ear too dull to hear. In other words, the problem is not on God's end. Can he hear you when you pray? Yep, he can hear you. Can he reach you at your place of need? Yep, he can reach you. Then what's the problem? Next verse. But your iniquities. That's a good Bible word for sin. Your iniquities have separated you from God. Your sins have hidden his face from you so that he will not hear you. The problem is not in God's ability to hear us today or to reach us today. The problem is sin creates a barrier between us and God. Our sin, our iniquity separate us from God so that he will not hear us. So what's the key? How do we, how do we get the heart of God moving towards us? With graciousness and compassion. How do we get him to relent from judgment in our nation? He said turn. Turn from sin. Turn your face from evil. You know Gordon MacDonald gave some insight on these thoughts about repentance. And he wrote these words. He said repentance is not originally a spiritual uh, or a, a religious word. It comes... It comes out of the culture that was very nomadic and there were no maps and street signs and people just kind of moved from here to there. And, and repentance was a word that, that described a moment when a person realized that the place that they were heading to uh, is not in the direction they're headed and, and they realize they're lost. Repentance is that moment when a person recognizes that I'm, I'm, not, trying, I'm not getting to where I was trying to get to. I moved the wrong direction. And it's not just realizing that I was going the wrong direction, but repentance describes the moment where they they turn and go in the right direction. And repentance is not just realizing you're going the wrong way and turning and going the right way, but it's that moment where you acknowledge to your other travel companions, hey guys, I was leading us in the wrong direction. That's what repentance is. Now, now some of you ladies, you, you live with a man who has never repented 
<laughs> about the wrong direction in his driving skills ever. But that's what the word means. For a guy to realize he was leading everybody the wrong way, and now he's going to turn around and go the right way and tell everybody, guys, I was leading us the wrong way. That's what the word illustrates for us. And the Bible tells us that that's what has to happen spiritually in our lives, that we repent, that we recognize that we were moving in the wrong direction. But by the grace of God, He has shown us the way that we should go. And we turn and we move in the right direction. And I want to tell you this morning, the right direction is towards the cross of Christ. The right direction is towards the plan that God has for your life. And not only do we recognize it, but we admit it to God. And we say, God, I, I, was, I was going the wrong way. I mean, I thought I had this figured out, but I was going the wrong way. And today I choose to go the right way. And I confess to you that I blew it on my own. That's what repentance means. That's what God's called us to do. The truth is, we don't like the word repentance. When you start saying you need to repent, it kind of makes us feel like, you know, we, we've blown it or we lack something or, or we don't measure up in some way. And a lot of us, we would just rather steer clear of these kind of words, but that's why these prerequisites for revival are given in the order that they're given. Because if you're here this morning and, and you've never prepared yourself, you've never humbled yourself, before God, then you are certainly not at a place where you're ready to to purify yourself and repent. See, humility is that process where we come to the place of being able to recognize we've been moving in the wrong direction. But when we prepare our hearts, we humble ourselves and we begin to pray and we begin to seek God's face, not his blessing, not his hand, but his face. We just want Him and nothing else because He alone can satisfy what's missing in our lives. And when we seek His face, then all of a sudden we're at a position where we can cry out for purity. And we can turn our face from evil. And we can call on God. Now let me just give you quickly, as we conclude this message, what the rewards are. We know what the prerequisites are, but what are the rewards of revival? First of all, God will hear us. How many of you know that's a reward? Good to know that God in heaven is listening. The Bible says that sin hinders our prayer. We've already shared how God can't hear us because of our iniquity. But if we'll repent, if we'll pray, if we'll seek His face and turn from our evil ways, God will hear us. That's what it says in verse 14. He says, then I will hear from heaven. God will hear us. That's not, that's not a hope. That's a guarantee. God will hear us. Here's the second reward. Not only will He hear us, but He'll help us. He said, I will hear from heaven and I will forgive their sin. Can I tell you that applies to everybody in this room today? There's not a person here that God looks at and says, well, if they cry out in prayer, if they seek my face... Truth be told, they got a lot more things they got to get right before I'll hear from heaven and forgive their sins. No, no, God's promise is true for every one of us that if we'll confess our sins, he's faithful and just. He'll forgive us of our sins. He'll cleanse us from all unrighteousness. That's the offer on the table. That's the reward for seeking his face. Here's the third one. Not only will he hear us and help us, but God will heal us. He said, I'll hear from heaven, I'll forgive their sins, and I will heal their land. 
Now, to understand the context, you got to know that God was talking to the nation of Israel at this time. They were warned that their sins would be answered by drought. All of Solomon's praying in Second Chronicles chapter 7 was, God, you know, don't send your judgments. And if you do send your judgments because of our rebellion and, and our sin and our iniquity, then God, could this be a place, this temple that I've built for your glory? Could this be a place where we call out to you and, and you relent from your anger? Could this be a place where we experience your compassion? They understood They had experienced that sometimes the judgment of God comes by way of drought in their lives. The drought would devastate their crops. It would devastate their economic structure. It was an agricultural community. They lived and died by the success of their crops. But I want you to look at the promise here. He said, if my people, called by my name, will humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways. I'll hear from heaven. I'll forgive their sins. And then he said, I'll heal their land. In other words, repentance equals rain. There won't be a drought anymore. If they'll call on me, I'll send the rain. Now here's what the Bible says, that God causes the rain to fall on the just and the unjust. That simply means that if you're praying and saying, God, our crops are failing, we need rain, we need rain bad. God's not going to send in a rain cloud and it rain on your garden and not on your next door neighbor's garden. Because God is good. And your neighborhood is influenced by your effectual fervent prayers. When you repent, when you call on God, God sends the rain. And he didn't say, I'll heal you. He said, I'll heal your land. What does America need to turn around? What does this nation need? Do we need uh, just a, a new policy? No, we need a people of God who will stand in the gap. We need people that will pray. We need people that will call on God, who will, who will stay between the, the porch and the altar and make up the hedge. We need intercessors who will call on God, who will pray, who will humble themselves, seek the face of God, Turn from evil. So yeah, but everybody else hasn't turned from evil. But if we will turn from evil, if we will allow God to purify our hearts, He will hear us. He will forgive us. And our repentance equals the reign of His goodness and His grace. And His reign will fall on this land. I want to tell you, the blessing that we've experienced as a nation has been because the prayers of God's people. And it will continue to rise and fall, the blessing of God, in correlation to the sincerity of the hearts of God's people. I want to invite you today to not just talk about it, to not just hear a message about it, but I want to invite you to pray with me. On this 4th of July weekend, as we celebrate, and we have a lot to celebrate, as we celebrate the rich history that we have of independence as a people. I would love nothing more than to hear the church declare that we are in dependence upon the living God to be our hope, to be our salvation, to heal our land, and to say from our hearts, God, we're putting stock in nothing else but a move of your spirit. 
And I want to tell you, the same Jesus that looked at that boy that was laying there in a comatose state, and people said, he's dead. Jesus said, he's not dead. That spirit comes out by prayer, and he raised him up. In the same way, we can look, we can look at circumstances in our own life. We can look at circumstances on a national scale. And we can say, boy, this looks hopeless. This looks dead. And Jesus would look right back at us and say, because it only comes out through prayer.